because we have all the children up today, I've got a special one-hour sermon planned for um, for our work. Nah, I wouldn't be that cruel because my kids are here too, and my wife would uh, have some good words for me after. We, uh, we, we're going to get through this good here. Again, reminder, I, I don't know if we mentioned this, in the back we do have materials. If you do have children here, feel free to pick up some stuff in the back that can prepare for them. We do this uh, partly because we think it's a healthy thing for the whole church. We, we call this all church worship. We think it's a helpful thing for the whole church to be worshiping together. And personally, I actually think it's not a bad thing for the younger ones to learn how to sit and worship together. And to develop some of those practices. So, but uh, we do know it's, it can be difficult for you parents probably more than anyone. So God's grace be with you. Um, again, we've been away. Uh, it's some good time with our family. One thing I know is during that time, I took actually a social media kind of hiatus. Not that I was fully removed. I wasn't active on there. But just kind of noticing that as well as kind of just the, the landscape of our culture and our nation Man, with a lot going on, I mean, just a lot of stuff going on, one thing that just struck me, and something, sometimes just being removed a little bit, you're able to see better, just the disunity of our world. I mean, just people at each other's throats. It's nuts. I mean, um, an AKA Facebook, right? Where people are just going at each other, so many different thoughts, opinions. And it's not bad to have thoughts and opinions, but some of the harsh rhetoric against one another. Um, but this, this, this unity we're talking about, it's not just something out there. It's not just something with the pagan heathens who don't know how to get along. But I think the thing that saddens my heart, it's also, at least in my observation, amongst the people who should probably have the greatest unity out of anyone, the people of God, the people who've been called out and and called his own. Um, It's been saddening for me to see the church, and I'm not talking about our church, don't feel I'm like following you on Facebook or something, but like the overall church just going at each other. Just like a big giant wedge being torn in, into the church. And, and in the midst of all that, I don't know if you're like me. I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm kind of an optimist, but I'm also a realist pessimist. Sometimes I think, man, there's no hope for any of us. We are just going to destroy each other. God, you know, without your grace, we would just be at war. Like, and I think some of that's true. But if, if unity, if being united, if being um brought together as one, if it feels like a pipe dream, I think if it feels like an impossible task, I would say probably, yeah, um, in our own strength. But it's exactly why we are in the uh, absolute need of, of a supernatural power of God to do something that we are not able to do in bringing us together. Because what we're going to look at in today's scripture as we continue after a little hiatus through the series through Philippians, um, we're going to look up at this idea that unity in the church, it's not just something that God calls us to do or not something he just suggests saying, you know what, guys, I think Sundays would just go so much better if you're unified. That's just my opinion. You know, you'd have so much conversations. We'd be better over the donuts and coffee. And, you know, um, it's not just something he suggests, but it's something that God fully expects as natural for the people who are called out in his name. So I'm going to be reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Or if you want to um, pick up one of the Bibles in the pews, we also have it up here on the screen. I think it's page 840 in, in the uh, bench Bibles. The Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 4, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Let me pray for us as we uh, seek God's leading here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church. Lord, we confess that um, as a larger church, we have often been divided. And sometimes division is needed, Lord. Sometimes there is a healthy division along the lines of what it means to follow you. But Lord, often we have been divided among means that are unhealthy, unbiblical. We pray that you would remind us again what unity looks like. What does it mean to consider one another better? What does it mean to be united in you? So guide us, Holy Spirit, during this time. As, as much of a mosaic of people are represented here, let this one word be spoken to everyone as they need to hear through your spirit. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 1, when we look at here, it begins by Paul sharing why you and I should be unified in the body of Christ. And he uses this phrase, if. So if. And if you actually look at the, the language here, you could, you could put that word if in front of every one of these phrases. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation spirit, if any affection and sympathy. Um, and you, we can read this mistakenly as kind of a speculative thing. Like, you know, uh, I'm not sure if you guys got it, but if you have some of this love, if you're kind of encouraged, then rather, um, these are not expressions of doubt. Paul's not saying, I'm not sure if you church, if you've got this. Um, he's assuming the certainty of these blessings for those who are in Christ. He's assuming that if you are a Christian, if you've been saved, if you've been called out, if you're all that's described in chapter one, then you've received these blessings and benefits of being in Christ. So it's talking about, it's a passage that's talking about the unity that's meant to be found among the people of God, united in Christ. And, and guys, here's a really important part of this. It's critical to recognize he doesn't start with our relationship with one another. He doesn't start with Hey, you know what? Church, look at John sitting down the, the pew from you. Look how well he reads his Bible. And, and look, look at Sally over there. Look how kind-hearted she is. And she just, darn it, wants to be a part of this church. So when you see people like that that you have something in common with, be united. Find things that you've got in common and celebrate your, your joint kind of um, things that bring you together. He, he doesn't start there. Biblical unity that we see described here, it's not dependent on some sense of oneness that we feel. Biblical unity as described here, it's not about how much we have in common, but it's a supernatural bonding. It's something that happens through the power of God. And guys, I can't stress enough, this is critical, because the big point that's being made here and today is unity itself is not the final aim. Unity, just unity for the sake of unity is not the final aim because you don't need the church to talk about unity. I mean, there's a lot of people in our culture today talking about unity. There's a lot of people talking about our country needs to be more unified. And, and, and the thing is, unity in itself, you can have the appearance of unity and be totally opposed to the ways of God. You can be totally unified with a whole bunch of a lot of people. And be totally opposed to what God says and what he says in his word. I mean, um, just a really extreme example. The Nazis, when they were wiping out like millions of people, very unified. I mean, they were totally on board. They were totally on mission, but they were totally wrong. So you can be unified and have nothing to do with God. Also, the point is not just unity for unity's sake. The, but the main, main point then is who Christians are united around. Who are Christians united in? And that's Jesus Christ and his message, his gospel. In other words, the unity that we're supposed to have, if you call yourself a Christian, the unity that we're supposed to share with one another, 
Um, it's not because you look at another Christian and you find in them something worthy of admiration. It's not because you find someone in your church and you say, wow, I really dig that person. They just, we get each other. We really gel. We're like brothers from another mother with the same father. I mean, we're like that close. I feel like I've known this person forever. That's great. And I want to celebrate. That's good. I would say that's from God, but that's not the only unity we're talking about. We're talking about a unity with someone who you might look like. And every sociologist would say, you have absolutely nothing in common with this person. You don't speak the same language. I mean, you both say it's English, but it's different. Um, you don't understand each other. You come from different worlds yet. There's something supernaturally that the spirit of God takes when Christ saves and knits together and calls people his own and says, you're family now. You're one now. Amen. That, that's the kind of unity we're talking about here. So when we look at this relationship with Jesus that unifies us, what are some of the aspects of that? He mentioned some things. One, he talks about encouragement. If you have encouragement, simply this encouragement, this is this idea that you're encouraged He's reminding them, you're encouraged because you're saved in spite of yourselves. And we saw that in chapter one, right? And and all our messages are online. You can look back. But this idea that, that, uh, especially in this church here, we were seeing people saved from all different kind of socioeconomic backgrounds, all different uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds, all different classes. And it was in spite of them, not because of who they were. Christ was initiating this extreme um, new message that doesn't matter how good you've been. It doesn't matter what family you're from. It doesn't matter your spiritual lineage. It doesn't matter how jacked up your parents were or how many vacation Bible schools they took you to. But it's purely based on my grace alone that I will choose whom I will choose and make them my own. And that encourages us. Encourages us because some of you, if you're, if you're like me, if you're being honest, you should say, yeah, I shouldn't have been on his list. I did a lot of bad stuff. I'm thinking a lot of bad stuff. Oh, I just thought of another bad thing. Oh, I I keep thinking. Some of us know for sure we should not have been chosen by him, but in his grace, he chooses us, and we're encouraged by that. It also says if you have any comfort, and and comfort here, what this means, you have to remember in chapter 1, Paul's writing to a people who have been suffering, who are under persecution, So when he's talking about comfort, he's talking about people who maybe in their flesh are not feeling much comfort, who are maybe feeling sorrow and agony and having lost occupations, having lost friends, families, having lost their dignity, having lost all these things. And and he's saying, receive comfort to know that the Holy Spirit walks with you, that even in your deepest sorrow, you are not going through this by yourself. And that leads us into the participation of the spirit. We could call this fellowship. That when you feel alone, God lets you know that he is with you at all times. For some of you, I hope this message strikes home because you struggle with loneliness. And it doesn't mean you don't have people around you, but in your heart you feel alone. What this reminds us is that when you are in Christ, you are never alone. You You participate in the fellowship of being part of God's family through the Holy Spirit. And he talks about if you have affection and sympathy. And this is important because what this says is that even though every, you know, you take the kindest person to this room. And if you've got stuff going on in your life right now and they will come to you, there is a certain point. No person will be able to comfort you in the way that you need to be. Am I allowed to say that? 
There are some stuff you go through that no matter how well people try to sympathize and empathize with you and walk with you and be with you, it's not going to feel like it's enough. And what God promises here is that even though people might fail you, whether their fault or not, God never will. He never disappoints. He never fails. And some of you, you need to take that to heart because you live a whole life of people failing you. You've lived a whole life of nothing happening the way it was supposed to. God promises, if you're in me, I will never fail you. So Paul is saying these things, uh, if they're true in you, as you receive deep encouragement from God, as you find deep comfort from his love, if, if if his empowering spirit is dwelling within you, then complete my joy. Complete my joy. What Paul means, guys, if you've experienced things, now experience the fullness of the Christian life. Experience um, the life that's meant to be lived in unity with one another, loving one another, working together to exalt Christ. And and Paul, basically what he's doing is he's echoing what he said in chapter 1, that if the gospel is true, if this message is real and if you believe it, then your life should look like it's true. If, if this message is real and, and trustworthy and true, then your life should look like it's true. That if you, sh- if, you have been un- if you have been unified with Christ, then this unity should now mark your life with others, with the church. But he mentions here, right? He mentions here the things that will always sabotage uh, Christian unity. The things that will always crush Christian unity. Uh, he mentions individual self-interest and pride. And that's what he talks about in verse 3 when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. And selfish ambition, um, some translations, they, they describe this as like rivalry. That selfish, selfish ambition is this idea of rivalry. Basically, it's living in a way where you measure yourself based on those around you. That selfish ambition, because if I say selfish ambition, a lot of you are like, yeah, I got no ambition at all. So that's not talking about me. It might be talking about you, even if you're not, if you, maybe you got a big divot in your couch from sitting there. You could still have selfish ambition because what this means is that you are comparing yourself to those around you and the things that you do, the way that you work yourself. Some of you, you do work yourself to the bone. Some of you, do you overlay guilt upon guilt upon guilt upon your shoulders, expectations? You do that because you see those around you and say, that's what I need to be. That's what I need to measure up to. And it's almost living like Christ hasn't settled the score. If we live like that, it's almost saying it doesn't matter what Jesus did for me to say that we're all equal before Christ, that we're now all equal before God. I've still got to make my mark. And it's living like your worth is based on what you can accomplish for yourself instead of resting in what Jesus has already accomplished for you. So we talk about selfish ambition. He also talks about conceit. And conceit, it's a little different. Um, Selfish ambition, you might be, if you describe them kind of like, you know, I've got to beat them or I've got to measure up. Uh, Conceit is more like being a sore loser when you don't. Conceit is kind of like the attitude that you have when you're not measuring up or when, when you're not being who you should be. And conceit is all about external appearances. Conceit is all about saving face. Conceit is all about... Uh, Maybe the way you talk to make yourself look like a way that you'd like to be perceived. Maybe a couple questions we can ask ourselves. Do you ever, 
like compare yourself to others and, and get bitter when you feel like your life doesn't measure up to theirs? Do you ever look at some of the stuff happening in other people's lives and say, man, they're no better than me. Why are they getting, why'd they get that job? Why, why is their marriage so good? Why are their kids like sitting down during service and not going crazy? Why, why are they married? Why, why are they living in a comfortable home? I, I, they're, they're, they're no better than me. And maybe the dark part of it is, do you silently delight when people that you feel don't deserve it are getting things? Do you silently kind of like give a little, yeah, when people like fall or fail and you, you, you don't like them, so you're kind of happy that happens to them? Maybe a way that we can describe conceit, conceit is that we become the ultimate judge of who is worthy or not. Ultimately, we become the judge of who is worthy of blessings or not. So in, in, rather than those things, selfish ambition or conceit, in verse 3, we're called instead in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. And, and in case that wasn't clear, Paul, he just he adds on to in verse 4 by saying, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I, I just think, and you guys are a smart group. I mean, at least the ones I know, you're a smart group. Um, I think most of us, we kind of intrinsically get this, whether you've been in church or not. Um, most of us, you don't need religion in your life to kind of be put off by really showy people, right? Like, I don't think any of us, when we were in high school, and you're like, you, if you got a car at all, right, you were happy. It was like a hand-me-down three different times, and you got it. It's got, like, part of a roof, and, like, it's got, like, at least a brake pedal. No gas, but you got to kind of do Fred Flintstone, and, you know. And, but then that really, like, rich kid rolls in. I'm dating myself when I say this, right? In like a, a, a new Corvette, like store-bought from daddy, never earned a single thing. And, and, and just like, yeah, aren't I great? And like really good-looking people who let you know how good-looking they are. And really rich people who let you know how rich they are. None of us say, oh, glory to God, you are so magnificent. Because intrinsic with every single one of us, we get this. We're put off by these showy displays of pride and hubris. There's something that bristles in us, within us when, when we encounter really self-centered individuals. You know, people who make everything about themselves. And, and some of us secretly, we don't mind if some of these show-offs, they hit a big fall. Some of these people who stick their foot in their mouth, like they just get lambasted by, by different folks, right? Or is that only me? Am I just the evil person here? Okay, it's just me. It's all right. I need Jesus. Um, the thing is, guys, here, here's the thing. It's really easy to see in other people when they're self-centered. It, I mean, it's we have like a radar, right? All of us got a great radar when someone is selfish. Like, we're amazing to point that out. But well, what I want to suggest is, I think as much as we detest this in others, we often don't recognize that we have some of these same tendencies within ourselves. That this kind of this self, self-focused tendencies, even if it's really subtle. And maybe one way I would put it that I would suggest it's the root of all of our sin. This kind of self-focused nature. And, and, if, and we're not going to turn there, but there's a story in, in, the, in the book of Genesis where there's creation. And in Genesis 3, we see a description of uh, the temptation of man and woman, Adam and Eve, from Satan. 
and ultimately the fall of humankind because they, they sinned. And it's fascinating how the serpent approached these, these people and how it tempted them. What, what did he say? You will be like God. You will be like God. That, that the essence of the temptation that he was putting out to eat this fruit is if you eat this fruit, God doesn't want you to eat it because he knows if you eat it, you will be like him. And it's a reminder for us, and we've all got our definitions of sin, right? But ultimately, sin is that we've, re- we've replaced the right rule of God in our lives, that we were created in a good way for God to be number one in our lives and for us to worship him and bow down to him, and then everything would be right. But what sin is, that we've taken God's rule, and he's, we've taken him off the throne, we've put ourselves there instead, and we have made ourselves God of our own lives. And, and not, probably not too many of us in this room would say it with our words. I mean, you're not going to walk around and say, I am now God, and I am sinning today. I mean, none of us are going to say it, but essentially in, in, our, in our lifestyles, the way we make decisions we, without God, we proclaim, I am God. I am the arbiter of truth in my life. I will determine what's best for me. So in the end, selfish ambition, uh, vain conceit. It comes from this belief that I deserve more than what I'm getting. I'm due more than what I receive. I'm, I'm worthy of more honor than I'm getting from people. And, and we live our lives through this question What's in this for me? How does this impact me? What's this mean for me before anything else? Because we're the king of our lives. We're the ones who rule our lives. And and Paul is speaking against that here. Paul's saying there's a better way. And and I I need to make this clear, guys. Um, Sometimes with, with a passage like this, it's really easy to hear, come on, all you selfish people. This is why the church in America is so jacked up because you're all so darn selfish, darn consumer, American mentality. And, and, you know, just lay lay into you, right? Just tell you how selfish, and maybe you are, right? But just lay into it. What's wrong with you? How self-centered, how self-focused, how we're so individualistic, we're just concerned about ourselves. And all that might be true, but we have to remember, God is not just trying to lay into you to give you a guilt trip. He's trying to bring you freedom. God wants to bring you freedom. He's not trying to make your life miserable. He's not telling you, why are you just thinking about yourself and making yourself all great? I'm the one, as if he's some selfish, petty God. What he recognizes is that um, when we put ourselves first, even though we think it's going to lead to riches and lead to joy and lead to satisfaction, it never does. It never does. He's a good God who wants to free us from all of the things that we have looked to for our significance. God is trying to free you from trying to look to all of the ways that you can make your name great and bring yourself stature and bring yourself security and bring yourself love and all of these different things. He's trying to say all of that in the end without me, it's just going to lead to death and not the life that I want to give you. Because he knows That's what's revealed here is if ultimately, if our life is continually demonstrating fruit, that we don't care about other people, that we don't care about anyone else more than ourselves, that it's just about us, perhaps it's a sign that we don't really know Jesus Christ. 
perhaps what Paul is trying to offer in mercy is saying, guys, if you don't see this kind of care about someone more than yourself, if you don't want to care about, if there's not this natural sense of other people more than this, not just about you, maybe the wisest thing to ask is, do you really know the Jesus that we're talking about? Because chapter two, what we're reading here, this is like evidence that there is a true Christ in your life. That when you have truly been united with Christ, then naturally you seek to want to consider others better than yourself. Then you seek to want to look for others' well-being. So God, he wants us to experience true joy in him by overcoming selfishness. How does he do that? Um, just one example, he gives us kids. <laughs> For those of you who have kids, how does he overcome our selfishness? He, he gives us things like kids or people like kids. Uh, we were just on vacation. Vacation was great. Um, but one, one thing I realized is that when you go on vacation with little kids, they determine everything you do. Like everything you eat, everywhere you go. Um, it, it's, I mean, we have to ask, is this age appropriate? Yeah, they probably wouldn't like going there. No one else in this restaurant would like it if we took them there either. Okay, that's off our list. All right, they got french fries and chicken nuggets there. Thumbs up. I mean, everything gets ruled by these other little people in our lives. I mean, we went to, and, and what, what it, how this helps root out selfishness is you realize as a parent, it's not all about just what you want anymore. I mean, we, we went to a movie during vacation. Honestly, I would have loved to see Mad Max or like Jurassic World, something with a lot of like violence and stuff. We went to see Pixar, which is cool too. But because I don't want like my kids to have nightmares of dinosaurs chasing them at night. Because their well-being matters to me. But it does require a dying to myself. It does require a sense of me saying, you know what? Their needs are just as if not more important than mine. How is this going to impact them? And on a larger basis for all of us here, I would say in the same vein, Um, He tells us to be part of a church. He tells you to be part of a church like the village or or other churches. He's saying, be part of something bigger than yourself. Be part of a place where everything is not going to be about you. Be part of a place where people are going to do things that sometimes may drive you mad. Hopefully it's not a heretical mad, but they do things that are just different from the way you would do it. It's not your style. It's not your taste. But I'm going to suggest to you, family, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Because we live in a society and a culture that tells you everything is about you. You can have it your way. Design it your way. Make it the way you would like. And perhaps God, because he loves you so much, is inviting you to be part of this thing called the church where you're going to be with people who are different than you. You're going to be with tastes that are perhaps different than yours. You're going to be with styles that are different than yours. Again, I'm not saying differences in certain core theology and doctrine. There are some things a church needs to stand and say, this is sin, this is not. But I'm saying things like how you sing. We all got different ways of how you sing. We all have different ideas of what good worship is. But perhaps God is saying, I want you to be part of something bigger that says it's not about you anymore. It's about asking, how does this impact this person down the the row there? Wow, you know, I I don't quite understand the way that we preach. But that that person over there, they, they sure seem to be getting it. Well, you know what? I, I'm not sure if everything here necessarily jives with why. But wow, look at all these people getting baptized and finding new life in Jesus. Something must be happening. And, and we say, I want to be part of considering others more than my own. I want to be part of something bigger than myself. Uh, and guys, um, it would be really wrong of me to kind of end there and just say, okay, guys. Now, on three, let's go do it. 
One, two, three, go. Be in a church. Be unified. Just love one another. Come on, stop thinking about yourself. I see some selfishness there. Come on, stop it. Go love her. Go be better. Stop. Put down that coffee. You know, we could, I guess, have this idea that, you know, let's go just do it. And I think that's part of it. We are to obey. We are to consider one another better. We're, We're to do all these things. But here's how we get transformed. You say, okay, Jesus, you said this is how I should live. I know I've got selfish roots, but I know I'm in Christ and I see there's a heart of me that wants to. So I'm going to go all out. I'm going to go all in. I'm going to give myself to people. I'm going to commit my time, my money, my energy, my passion, my time. And if you do it correctly, you're going to hit a point. You're going to hit a wall. If you're doing it correctly, we're going to say, I don't have this in me. I'm so tired. I am self-centered. Okay, I admit it. I like my own time. I like my own money. I like my own rest. I, I don't want to think about someone else. I've got so many problems for myself. And I'm going to suggest to you that's not a bad place to be because what that does, it drives you right back into who Christ is. It drives you right back onto your, on your face in front of Jesus saying, Jesus, remind me again who you are. Remind me again of how deeply you love Remind me again how deeply you sacrificed. Remind me again how deeply you didn't consider your own worth, but you considered us when you went to this thing called a cross. Remind me again how you forsake fellowship with the Father so that we could be entered into fellowship. Remind me of those things again, Jesus. And we get on our face, and some of you might be led to deep prayer, deep weeping as you repent of your selfishness. And as you do that, then then you're, 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 for, you're forgiven of those things. You come back, and you say, okay, I'm going to try to do it. And you try to do it again, and you fall flat on your face again. But the cycle, that's how Christ transforms us. I have nothing against good Bible studies. I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. I know I don't look like a nerd at all, but I'm kind of a nerd. Um, I love sitting in a room talking about stuff. I love digging through books. But guys, here's the thing. You are not going to be transformed in the ways that really I think you need to be if that's all your Christian growth is about. Just learning a lot of nice theologies and doctrines. The, the way you get transformed is pick up the Bible, read what it says, do what it says, fall flat on your face because you fail because you're not Jesus, and come back to him, receive his grace, and keep doing it. And in that process, God starts to transform us so that it becomes more natural. It does start to become who you are. And I see that within many of you here. Some of you, I see the fruit of Christ in your life that you automatically go to considering others better than yourself. And it reminds me that, wow, there's a genuine faith in Jesus Christ there. I know she gets it. I know he's been saved. Wow, look at the way that he is giving up sleep right now to counsel someone over the phone. It it must be Jesus in his life. Because the good thing about coming to Jesus is um, it gives us good self-perspective. It gives us proper self-perspective. Because, again, I would say beginning with our father, Adam, um, we all have the tendency to ask, how can I be like God? How can I be more like God? And we think of ourselves probably more than we should. We probably have an overestimated opinion of who we are. Why do you get mad? Because you feel people aren't treating you with the respect they should. Why do you get upset? Because the person at the cashier didn't give you the respect you deserve. Why do you get um, angry? Because the person driving in front of you is not driving the way they should. I'm, I'm talking to myself. A lot of anger I see in my heart when I drive. Basically... What do I feel like I deserve? I feel like I deserve a lot more than I think. 
But when I come to Christ, it gives me proper perspective to remember he's God and I'm not. And when I know that he's God and I'm not, even if people speak ill of me, even if people don't treat me well, even if I might not be succeeding in all the ways that the world measures success, even if I might be failing in all these different things, what do I know is that he's God, but wow, he died for me to make me his own. He loves me deeply. And it gives us proper perspective in life. And guys, as we grow in humility, as every single one of us grows in Christian humility, our community will grow in Christian unity. As each one of us individually grows in Christian humility, our community will grow in Christian unity. So I'm going to just close on this just simple question. And you guys know the answer here. What destroys a church and its mission? What destroys a church and its mission? There's a lot of people out there that think, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not totally making fun of them, maybe just a little bit, but they're like, you know what? It's ISIS. ISIS is totally going to kill the church. You know, we need to like bunker down right now because ISIS is going to kill the church. They're going to come for you. They're going to come for your wife and your kids. Um, maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm not a prophet. Maybe. But I don't think that will actually kill the church. I think it will actually strengthen the church. Because the church is always strengthened under persecution. But you know what kills the church? It's disease from within. What kills the church is not always from outside. It's selfish discord from inside. It's selfish ambition from inside. It's, oh, this church is not what I always thought it was. Or, oh, they're not loving me like they used to here. Or why didn't I get that position? Why aren't I allowed to do that? Why, why aren't people saying hi to me like they used to? Who are all the, who's sitting in my seat? <laughs> None of you do that. I know that. But, uh... but what kills a church in her mission what kills a church like ours that God is really using to reach a lot of people is when we start fighting with ourselves within. So this is a survival thing. But on a more positive end, what, what glorifies God, guys? What glorifies God? I, I really believe what glorifies God is the supernatural unity that brings together this right here. And I know it's summer break, so we don't have a lot of our people here right now. But what I think glorifies God is when we walk out of church afterwards at like 12 o'clock and, and people are just standing on the steps outside of church and people are driving by, walking by. And I love it because everyone's got a confused look like. Because it's just this weird looking group coming out together. I mean, people are legitimately confused. Like, what's going on in there? Because I see people from like local colleges hanging out with people from the neighborhood people I've seen in recovery, with people who are getting their PhDs, people of different colored skin, people who look, just look really different. Why are they together? And what glorifies God is when we're able to see um, in our world that is so fractured, in our world that is so broken, in our world where everyone seems to be going at each other's throats, everyone is broken off into different tribes, what does it look like when people representing all different tribes, boom, are brought together in the name of Christ? Who are saying, the only reason that we can actually call one, one another brother and sister is not because we have much in common, but it's because of Jesus that unites us. And it's the Jesus that allows us to lay down the things that we would consider for ourselves and say, how can I consider one another better? That's the Jesus we worship here, and that's the God who gets glorified through who we are. Amen? 
Amen. So I don't know. Can I ask you to stand up? We're going we're gonna to close and praise, pray this way. And our worship team is going to come up.